Bibles to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having been made, uh, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be in vain? He therefore that ministers to you Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then they which are of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not of the things which are uh, uh, written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. The law is not of faith, but that the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In grade school, I went to a summer day camp uh, every summer, and uh, I was called into the leader's office one afternoon for misbehaving in juggling class. I, I can tell you I was not misbehaving in juggling class, and I have two proofs of this. First is I can juggle. If I was misbehaving in juggling class, I wouldn't be able to juggle. And the second is, is that everyone who was there that day knows that it was Jojo Franks who was cutting up and not me. So regardless, the leader told me that my punishment was, and I'm not making this up, I was not allowed to carry luggage for a large incoming group of people who were staying on the campus. I grew up on a Christian college campus. And my thoughts were in grade school, oh, that's so sad. I don't have to carry luggage. Well, that's just a shame. I think the only thing worse was that when my brother got in trouble years before me, he told me this later, he was told he was not allowed to volunteer to weed flower beds. So I guess the lesson is, if you get in trouble, they let you off the hook. And I don't know how this leader's children turned out at all with this kind of philosophy. But speaking of weeds, they have to be pulled. You, you know, if you grab them and you pull them quickly and they snap off, you leave the roots behind, you get the top of the plant. Well, this often leads to them growing back. It's a lot easier to do it that way, but it doesn't really solve the problem. Some people actually take the approach of mowing over weeds, which just causes them to spread. One of the most effective forms of weed control is just getting down on your knees and pulling out the entire plant from the ground. And I think, truly, this is one of the problems 
that we have in American Christianity in particular, not that we have churches filled with weeds in the gardens, I'm not saying that, but it is that we have tried to deal with our sin, I think in the way we evangelize, by mowing over the sin weeds instead of doing the more difficult work of actually pulling them out. So I'm going to call this lawnmower evangelism. And lawnmower evangelism begins this way. It, it is teaches people, you just need to pray a prayer. Just pray this prayer and you're saved. And it's often part of a shortened gospel presentation. A very quick go through the Romans road. Or even just giving someone a gospel tract and that's all. It doesn't actually deal with that individual's personal sin problem. And the result of this lawnmower evangelism is that, yes, in a sense, it cuts down the spiritual weeds, but given time, they begin to grow back. And that results in a lack of assurance. People who pray the prayer often are people who pray the prayer a lot. They just keep praying the prayer over and over again. Okay, Lord, if you didn't save me the last time, I need to be saved this time. Please save me for my sins. Next day. Okay, Lord, yesterday I know I prayed this. Please help me, Lord. I, I don't think, please, and there's that lack of assurance. And it also, coupled with that repeated prayer, is people trying harder to deal with their sin by just applying themselves, by just being a better version of themselves, by just turning over a new leaf. And that, friends, leads to a misunderstanding of the Christian life. People like this often erect rules and more rules. They tend to judge themselves and others by these rules. Let me give you some examples of these. Because these are ones that I think over time, American Christianity has come to realize were not the right approach. But let me give you some examples. When I was in high school, if I, I, I told you I grew up on a Christian college campus. If I went into a movie theater, I got in trouble. But if I went into a blockbuster and rented the exact same movie, do you all know what a blockbuster is? I realize some of you are really young. You're thinking, what in the world is a blockbuster? So they took the movies that went out in the theater, and after a certain period of time, you could rent those on what's called a VHS tape. It's this weird-looking black box. And you put that little box into a bigger box that's connected to your television. This is back when the TVs were this big. And it would play the movie for you. So you could go into Blockbuster, and you could rent this movie and take it home and put it into your own personal theater system, and that was fine. But if Blockbuster was connected with walls, the very next door over, there was a room, and there's like 15 or 20 chairs in the room, and somebody's popping popcorn, and they take that, that black box, and they go into that room and stick it into another black box, and now on a little larger screen, show the exact same movie. Now that was wrong. That's nonsense. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. That's what lawnmower Christianity produces. Back 100 years ago, you probably would be surprised to know this, that almost 
everybody smoked. Did you know that? Almost everybody smoked. Um, and if you watched early American television, you'll see a lot of people smoking. It was the thing to do. Um, and what happened was, particularly in America, um, there was the conclusion reached by American Christians that smoking is wrong because of a complete misreading of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And because of that, the result was uh, the body is the temple kind of argument. The result was is that smoking was deemed a sin. Now, I will tell you, I think it's foolish to smoke. Um, there's a lot of foolish things to do, though. I, I'm not big on hang gliding. Uh, I'm not going to do anything where if one slight error occurs, you're dead at the end, right? That's just kind of, to me, you want to do that? I had a professor who, who said he was seconds away. He was trying to pull his cord. He was seconds away from that event horizon where it, you, you don't live after this, right? He had a little stopwatch, and, and then he just kind of lost track of time and then went, oh, now. I, I think I'm not going to do that. I think that's foolish. I don't think it's sin. When you say something is a sin that God doesn't say is a sin, that's lawnmower Christianity. When you, when you look at women wearing pants, this was a big deal 30 years ago. And I, and I don't mean, ladies, you don't have personal standards. You, I think modesty, decency really is the right Bible word, is important. I think it's very important. But this was a big deal to the point where I heard of a church where a lady on a ladies' retreat wore pajama bottoms to bed, and the pastor's wife called her on the phone and said, you were wearing pants. That's nonsense. That's a lawnmower Christianity. That's rules upon rules, and it produces a lack of assurance. What we really have to do is do weed-pulling evangelism, weed-pulling Christianity, which creates assurance, but it takes longer. You, you can't just say, okay, bow your head, Look at these three verses, bow your head, pray this prayer, boom, somebody's saved. It doesn't work that way. You actually have to deal with sin in that individual's life and get that person to come and see that, yes, I'm a sinner before God. God sees me as someone who is broken in sin. And that requires something even greater. And it can be very difficult. And kind of messy. But let me tell you, when that person is converted, and that's the word. When that person is converted, then real change takes place. I was sitting in the cafeteria of a Christian school years ago, having an interesting conversation with a bunch of Christian school teachers over what word is the right word to use for a person who's been saved or being saved. And they like the word salvation. It's a perfectly good word. It's a Bible word. I said, I like the word conversion because it does kind of give the idea of a, of a changed life. And I remember one particular nice lady getting very upset, very upset, because she felt like my using the word conversion was replacing the right word to use. And I, and I was sitting there, didn't have as much wisdom then as I hopefully do now, but I will tell you, my opinion has not changed. She was completely wrong. I don't mean you can't use the word salvation, that's true. But conversion is a perfectly good word. Because this is what the gospel does. It changes your life. And so what happens when you do weed-pulling 
Christianity is you find that there begins in that person's life an emphasis on walking with the Lord, an emphasis on prayer, on Bible reading, on discipleship, on faithfulness to God's church, faithfulness in giving time, treasure, talents, faithfulness in doing all the things that Christians do. And it doesn't come from a motivation that is, I must do them or else, but comes entirely from a motivation that says, this is what I do for the one who saved me, for the one who changed me, for the one who won me by his work on the cross. Paul deals here in Galatians with one of the problems between the two approaches to the gospel as it relates to the Christian life. And what I've called lawnmower Christianity or evangelism, because it doesn't remove the root of the spiritual weeds, encourages law-keeping, not lawn-keeping, law-keeping as a means of sanctification. Christian growth, then, is determined by conformity to law. Anytime, listen, anytime somebody argues that your Christianity or its value is determined by your keeping law, you know that's wrong. Okay, just mark it down. That person in this area of life, maybe other areas they've got it right, this area is completely wrong. Dead wrong. Bible teaches against it kind of wrong. But on the other hand, weed-pulling Christianity focuses on removing the roots, encourages faith as a means of sanctification. It's not lawless. Now, I've had people who have argued with me, and they say, well, you're just antinomian. That's the scholarly word for lawless. Ah, uh, namas is the word for law. Ah, uh, namas means no law. So, you know, you, you get to the point where somebody's using the word antinomian, you know they've had a little bit of education, and now they're trying to, you know, uh, one-up you with, I know what I'm talking about. And so I'm going, I'm not antinomian. I'm not lawless. I do believe that I live under the authority of another, King Jesus. I live under his authority. But I don't live according to rules that produce a certain kind of life in order to win God's favor. That's the essence of legalism. And that's what Paul is arguing against. Here's the nub of the argument. Faith is better. Faith is better because, number one, it's better for you to live by faith than to try to keep the law. Faith is better because it responds to God's revelation. Look at verse 1 again. Foolish Galatians. Oh, you fools. You have been hoodwinked, charmed, like a snake charmer on his, on his little whistle, right? You have been charmed that you would not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus has been evidently set forth, even crucified among you. Now, you see, the false gospel tricks believers into giving up their faith. Paul says that these Galatians had been charmed. The King James uses bewitched. That's, a good, that's an interesting word. Actually, I like the word bewitched there. This is something the false brethren were doing. You go back to chapter 2 and verse 4. They're, they're hoodwinking, they're charming, bewitching the brothers in Christ, the true Christians, by arguing that in order to be saved, one had to become a Jew first. You want to be a Christian? You need to become a Jew. 
Once you become a Jew, then you are saved. And this is only possible, Paul says, because they were spiritually, here's, here's a word that we don't like because it's a little impolite, but the word stupid. He's used the word foolish here. And the adjective to Galatians in verse 1, the foolish Galatians, it, it, it's, it's a word that describes them and it actually means to be the fool. And it's not an insult. He's not trying to insult them. You remember when Jesus is on the Emmaus Road and he's got the two men and they don't know who he is after he rose from the dead. This is the end of the Gospel of Luke. Remember what he says to them finally when he breaks the bread? Oh, fools of heart, slow to believe the prophets. You are fools. You're spiritually stupid. And, and this switch is folly to go from the gospel to this false gospel and everything that it means because it denies what these people knew to be true. They knew Jesus died and rose from the dead. They knew it. Their faith in Jesus was so real, Paul says, it was as if when I preached, you were standing at the foot of the cross yourself, which, by the way, is astounding because Paul wasn't there either. When a pastor stands and opens the word of God and preaches the gospel truth of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, my friends, do you realize it's as if you're there? It's as if you are standing there and you are actually seeing Jesus die yourself on a cross for your sins. And that when he rises from the dead, like Mary Magdalene, like uh, Mary and Martha and the others, and, and like Peter and John, you see the resurrected Christ and it changes you. You saw it. He says, you saw this happen. My preaching of the gospel was so powerful because the Spirit used it to give you a mental image of what was happening at Calvary. But to adopt Judaism would violate that belief. And Paul says it plainly. You end up disobeying the truth. Um, it's like entering the wrong door. You, know, you probably had that horrible experience. At some point in your life, you go in the wrong bathroom. Um, I was in a Target recently with little Henry Murray. Um, we were coming back from the Anchorage last year for church retreat. And he said, I have to go to the restroom. And uh, he was riding with Becky and me. So I said, well, here's Target. We're charging up the car. Let's run in here. I'm just going to tell you, it wasn't clear. And, and you'd walk down this hall. And as soon as I came around the corner and saw just a panel of women in front of me, I just grabbed Henry, put my hand across his eyes, and we just turned and walked back out. Let's go down this hall, Henry. Let's try this hall. This is, seems like the better hall. It's still red, you know, but it's the better hall. And, and then after everything's done, we'll walk down the parking lot. Henry looks at me and goes, why did we go in the ladies' bathroom? <laughs> I was hoping he didn't notice. Can't slip anything by that boy. You, you've gone through the wrong door. That's to disobey the truth. If there's any door other than the door of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then everything that's behind that door, which is what the gospel means to your Christian life, if there's any other door that you enter, you are disobeying the truth because that door is not the gospel. 
He says, you have to enter into this door. And, and this is literally, Paul says, going back on your faith. They believed Paul's preaching. That's primary revelation. But they were listening now to false teaching, which is no revelation at all. It's not from God at all. And the preachers of this false gospel, Paul had already said, they are accursed. So Paul is making it plain that faith is better because it responds to primary revelation. And I think then he argues faith is better because it brings you into relationship with God's Holy Spirit. And if you look at verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 14, do you see this, this repetition of the word spirit? This what I learn of you, receive the spirit by the works of the law, by hearing of faith. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, you're now made perfect by the flesh. Verse four, verse 5, rather, he that ministers to you of the spirit, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse 14, the promise of the spirit comes through faith. So do you see what he's arguing here? Faith actually brings you into relationship with God's Holy Spirit. And I, it's funny because Paul now says, I want you to teach me something. He, instead of being the teacher, he's using now a rhetorical device of putting himself in the position of a student. The student asks the questions, the teacher answers the questions. So Paul says, ooh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. And they go, okay, young man Paul, what's your question? And he says, okay, let me ask you. I've got three questions. And what are they? How did you receive the Spirit? Did you do that by the law? That's one of the answers. That's one of the possible answers he gives. Or did you do it by the hearing of faith? Now, we know the answer to that question, don't we? If I'm keeping the law and I receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the law, then why did Jesus even have to die on the cross? This is the question I ask Roman Catholics all the time. If salvation comes simply by joining the Roman Catholic Church and going through all these motions that you have, then what's the point of Jesus on a cross? You've got an image of him right there on your wall. Why did he die? There's no answer that they have for that question. So question number one, how did you receive the Spirit? Question number two, how are you maturing in your faith? So if you started with the Spirit, that's how, you know, you come up to two doors, right? Right door, wrong door. Right door is Spirit. Right door is the Gospel. You open that door and you enter into the Christian life. But is it possible that I entered into the Christian life, but somehow then went I back outside through that door and entered into the door of Judaism or into the door of works-based salvation and somehow was made better by that? That doesn't make any sense. Paul says, no, it's not possible that you began your Christian life in the Spirit and then somehow, because of your own works, because of your flesh, you're brought to a state of spiritual maturity or a state of completeness. Then he asks, it, question three in verse five, how, how did I perform miracles among you? Did I do that by the law? Does the law actually ever perform miracles? Does the law do anything supernaturally? The answer, of course, is no. He says it was entirely by the Spirit. He that ministered you by the Spirit. It, it, was it by the law or was it by faith? And so he says here, it's not by the law. It's by the hearing of faith, question one. It's not by the law, it's not by your flesh, it's by the Spirit through the gospel, number two. And it's not by the law, but by faith, number three. He keeps bringing them back to this point that it can't be what you're doing. It has to entirely be what God is doing in you. 
So Paul's conclusion then in verse 14 is that I gain the promise of the Spirit. I actually come into relationship with him through faith. There is a promise of the Spirit as part of the gospel. And there's suffering. These people had suffered in Galatia, the, Gaul, the Gaulish region of Turkey, I think the southern region of Turkey. Paul's first missionary journey as he hits all these little towns. They had suffered for their faith. Paul and Barnabas had suffered for their faith. And these people, they were suffering at the hands of the Jews who hated them. They were suffering at the hands of their fellow Gentiles who were ostracizing them. They were really being punished for their faith in ways that we can't even imagine here in, in a land that has some measure of religious liberty. They were really suffering. So Paul said, did you do all that for nothing? You got the Holy Spirit. You received the promise made to Abraham. But it was entirely by faith. Now, not only does Paul prove that the law is not the answer for personal salvation. He then demonstrates it. So he's making an argument here. You can kind of see his argument. He's, his argument is faith is better because that's what was revealed. And faith is better because of that Holy Spirit that's given to those who believe. Okay. But it, he says, can I show you an example of this? And his example of all people is Abraham. So he takes them back to the Old Testament and he says, let me tell you about Abraham. So this is point number two. This faith is better argument is demonstrated in the life of Abraham. And the first thing he points out is that our righteousness, like Abraham's, is the result of our faith. Look at verse 6. Even as Abraham believed God. I want you to notice in these few verses, 6 through 9, how many times a reference to faith or belief is used. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Do you see that? How many times did he use it? He used believing once, faith three times, and faithful once. So clearly this is the idea he's giving here, but in giving it, he's focusing on one aspect of it, is that by believing in God, Abraham, God actually rang up like you used to have, we don't do this anymore because it's now all apps and credit cards, and but used to have the old uh, cash register, you know, they type in the, the numbers and cha-ching, and the register opens and you hand the cash over. See, God actually said, I accounted to Abraham, to his account, I gave to him righteousness. In fact, the pivot in verse 6, even as. So what I've been saying, Paul says, now look at Abraham as my example. He believed in God, and because of that becomes the standard bearer for all who will believe in Jesus. Abraham is our example. And of those who believe, even as Abraham believed, are declared to be righteous. I use this example. I've used it here, I'm sure. For those of you who remember uh, the very early part of the 20th century, 21st century, um, 
maybe it was at the end of the last century, in fact. I think it was at the very end of the 20th century uh, was the crime of O.J. Simpson murdering his wife and Ron Goldman. Do you, do you remember that? You that are older, some of you weren't born then. I, I followed that trial. I should have been working, selling advertising, but instead I was just glued to the trial. It was fascinating. I watched the prosecution and the defense and the defense was the best money he could buy because he was wealthy. In fact, you, do you remember he was the spokesman for the Hertz um, um, car rental company? Do, do you guys remember when he did those Hertz commercials? He was in movies. He had become an actor. He was, he was just so popular. He was the juice, OJ. He was just so good. Uh, one of the uh, first 2,000-yard rushers in the NFL when he played for Buffalo. He was just so, so good. But he murdered his wife. And he murdered this man in a fit of rage. And I remember Judge Ito sitting on the bench when the jury came back with their verdict. And they said, not guilty. And he declared O.J. Simpson not guilty. You are not guilty of this crime. Now, did he do it? The whole world knew he did it. The whole world knew. Except that jury, apparently. But he was found not guilty. And when the judge said, you are not guilty, even if he did it, which is the title of the book he wrote later, If I Did It, <laughs> actually admitting basically his guilt, he was not guilty. And the God of the universe looks at you and all of your sin, as wicked and vile and horrible as it is, he looks at you and because of your faith in Jesus, God declares you not guilty. In fact, it's even better than that. It's not just not as if we ever sinned. That's the old definition for justification. Just as if I never sinned. It's even better than that. Actually, the righteousness of Jesus is applied to my account. So it's not just that I never sinned in the eyes of God. It's that now I have the righteousness of Jesus so that when he sees me, he sees his son. This is the beauty of this doctrine. And in fact, if you'll notice here, when he says that it's not just Jews who are justified by faith, all those who believe in Abraham are declared to be righteous, that he says in verse 7, Know you therefore that they, who are the they? They which are of faith. Who are they? Who are the they? Who's they? That's me. That's you. That's us. We are the same as the children of Abraham. And imagine how offended a Jew would be hearing that. You're telling me that you're a son of Abraham? Oh, no, 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 no. You don't even look like him. That doesn't count. You got blonde hair and blue eyes. You're not a son of Abraham. You're, you're from the heart of Africa. You're not a son of Abraham. Yes, I am. I sure am. How do I know? Because it's not based on ethnicity. Chapter 3 and verse 28, it's not based on my gender. It's not based on my ethnicity. It's based solely, completely on the fact that I believe like he believed. So the universality of this gospel was something God planned. And I love what he says. He says in verse 8, the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the heathen. Here's this, this biblical anticipation that this is God's plan from the outset, from the very first, that the heathen would be also justified by faith 
that, that anticipation is in the Abrahamic covenant. He says, I will give you a land, I will give you seed, and I will make you a blessing. Literally, it reads this way, be a blessing. You will be a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations. And that's the emphasis on the blessing part, that those who believe like Abraham, who are from Korea, or from India, or from New York, or from Tarboro, or from anywhere around, right? Holly Springs, Apex, Fuquay, Morrisville, even Cary. Okay? Everybody. Durham. Durham. I'm, I didn't want to leave Durham out. Durham people get to do that too. We're all saved like Abraham was saved. So our blessing, if you understand that our righteousness like his is the result of faith, then our blessing like his is the result of our faith too. For as he says in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Do you see this idea of a curse? We are blessed because we're no longer under the law's curse. The problem uh, uh, of sin is that it brings this curse upon man, but the problem is not alleviated by personal merit. In fact, that only makes it worse. That compounds the sin. Those who attempt to keep the law are stuck in this legalistic wrestling hold. They can't break free. They're incapable of doing enough to merit salvation, but unfortunately they think they can. They just have to try harder. They have to do better. That's where you get that praying the prayer over and over and over again. Instead of understanding that God completely dealt with their sin, they instead minimize how bad their sin is. Well, I'm really not that bad of a person. And they maximize their own works and personal merit. I'm actually a pretty good person. And beside, it doesn't matter because they prayed the prayer over and over and over again. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. I really believe this. This actually defines many people who are in evangelical churches right now. who really believe they're saved. Because this is kind of how they look at it. I prayed this prayer, and I'm actually a pretty good person, and, and I'm not really that bad. It's kind of my backup to that prayer thing. And they probably wouldn't describe it that way, but if you press the point home, and you ask a question like, how many of you are dirty, rotten, vile, wicked, sinful people, and that's your heart? Most of them would say, that's really not me. And they would look at other people and say, that's really them. It, 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 it actually gets communicated by things like, you know, people who live in Las Vegas, they can't be, can't really be a Christian who live in Las Vegas. They don't need the Lord. You think people who live in Atlanta are better than people who live in San Francisco? I've had, I've had people communicate this way to me on so many different levels. And I look at this and I say, but wait a minute. That's not, that's not pulling out the weeds. That's just mowing over them. I'm not under a curse, my friends. Not because of who I am, but because, notice this, who Jesus is. Verse 12, the law is not of faith, but the man that does them, does them shall live in them. Christ, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. If you try to go back and do the law, you're going to live under this curse. But Christ has redeemed me from the curse, being made a curse for me because 
Everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why wasn't he beheaded? Why wasn't he stoned? Why did he die on a cross? Because he had to become the curse. He had to accept all my wickedness onto himself. And that's why he says the curse isn't lifted by the law. Rather, he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the just are declared righteous according to their faith. So those two approaches to life, law-keeping leads to greater spiritual debt, but faith is the only means for spiritual peace. So that I'm blessed because Jesus redeemed me from the law's curse. I'm not under that anymore. Why go back to it at all? Jesus did this by becoming cursed for me. And the law curses those who are hanged on this tree. But he was hanged on this tree. And now I'm full circle back to verse 1 again. Because we're talking about somebody dying on a cross. Jesus had been crucified for them and they knew it because Paul had preached it to them. And now they're reminded of the ramifications of that death. His death bought my peace. His stripes heal me. His wounds cleanse me. His bruises, my blessings. And I don't have to go back and say, what are the rules I have to live by in order for God to love me? I don't have to do that because I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's why we sang Fanny Crosby's hymn tonight. Redeemed, redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You, you understand, friends, that if, if we at all I know it's messy. I know that the desire is to help people in their Christian walk. I know there's that desire. But if we law people, if we add law to them, we're not helping them. You might get outward conformity, mow down those weeds. But the root problem is still there. The root's still there. I've told you this, I'll close with this, but I've told you before, there was a church my in-laws, my sister-in-law and her husband went to, and ironically called Grace Baptist Church. And when asked about membership, they were given a piece of paper that they had to sign. It was a church covenant that they had to sign. And in the church covenant, it had a list of sins that they could not ever do, things they could not do, a list of laws. Now, in those things were some of the things I mentioned to you earlier as examples of lawnmower Christianity. Do you know what wasn't on the list? Pride, gossip, anger, bitterness. Those things weren't on the list. And that's because, unfortunately, the people who wrote that document and who founded that church apparently didn't fully understand what grace means, even though that's the name of the church they, they pulled. And they certainly didn't understand what it means to live a life of faith. We're not going to do that here. It is messy. It is difficult. You'd love to see people conform and do right. 
And there is a right way of living. We're going to look at that later in this series. But it isn't by adding law. It's by walking by faith. Let's pray together. Father.